and um, they were on preparing yourself for the work that God has called you to do. And I remember <clears throat> showing and laying out for you that was based on three basic areas found in the Bible that we need to be sure of. The first one, obviously, was in 2 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, where the Bible says we have a sure word. We know the Bible is the true word of God. The second one was found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, and that's where the Bible says that we're to have a sure, a sure calling of God. And then the third one was Proverbs 11:18 that talks about getting a sure reward from God. Those were the three things that we really based last week's message on. And from uh, verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 27, we saw that this preparation is to make you uh, fit for what God's plan is and how you're going to fit into it. I've taught you many, many times that the Bible is like a gigantic picture puzzle. And all of the chapters, the verses, the words in the Bible are likened to the pieces in a picture puzzle. As you begin to put the picture puzzle together, a picture emerges. And, um, you know, that's really what the Bible's all about. The overall concept of the Bible displays a picture. That picture is God's kingdom. And all of the chapters, the verses, and everything in the Bible are the pieces that put that picture together. And when you got saved and God, God saved you, he, he, he made you part of that picture puzzle. You're part of the putting together of God's plan or God's picture. And you know as well as I do that in a picture puzzle, the pieces have to fit. And in Christianity, to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, you have to fit into the plan of God. And you have to know where you fit. And you have to be sure where you fit. And you get that from a sure word, a sure calling, and obviously then a sure reward. It's your private piece of the action of what God is doing down through history. I guess most Christians probably don't look at it this way, but... You know, every Christian in every age or dispensation or every generation, I guess you could cut it down to that far. I don't think they always look at themselves as how important they are that they were born when they were born and the time they were and how God brought all the events in their life for them to get saved. And now once they do get saved, how vital they are to the fitting into what God is doing. No accident you were born when you were born. There's no accident that God orchestrated the events to get you here. Here. He wants you to be a piece of the puzzle. And here we'll show you how you fit in. We'll knock off the rough edges. We'll polish you up. We'll grind you a little bit. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it works. And we looked at the word fit. Last week, as this week, was a great study on word studies. And word studies are are a tremendous way to study the Bible. Uh, most people take a very shallow word study. I, I like the depth of word studies. And last week we looked at the word fit. And I kind of walked you through how that kind of lays itself out in the Bible. In Song of Solomon 5, it talked about eyes fitly set, looking at the same thing that Christ is looking at and seeing it as he sees it. Then we talked about Proverbs 25, 11, where he uses the word fit, that the word of God needs to be fitly spoken. When you give somebody the word of God, it's going to fit the need in their life. Then we talked about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, where he talks about in God's mind, the whole body of Christ needs to uh, be fitly joined together. Then I ran you to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and looked at you and I, how that we are fitly framed together for the work of the ministry. It was an incredible word, and it's an incredible study through the Bible. You know, 
I got to, you know, if I can speak personally here for a moment, uh, it's, it, for me it's quite incredible to watch as, as your pastor uh, you to work together as a team. I, I don't care what we do, no matter what we do or where it's at or what it, what, what it entails. It's, it's how you all fit together perfectly for the work of the ministry. You know, our church is filled to the brim with men and women who are great leaders. And that's always a strength of any church. I always am looking for every young man, every young lady, every person, our teenagers as they grow up. I'm always looking for anybody. I'm combing the, the people that I meet for anybody who has a basic sign of leadership. And then cultivate that and grow that and help them. But our church has an incredible abundance. And the old saying is that, you know, you have too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And, of course, that's true in the world many, many times. But it's not true in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church because the first mark of a great leader is someone who is also a great follower, someone who doesn't care. There'll be times that this person will be in charge and you'll lend your support. Somebody else will be in charge, you'll be in charge, and everybody works together. That's because, as I said last week, the common thread that weaves itself through everything we do is, is ministry. And when ministry becomes your top priority, everything else will fall into its place in its proper order. And, uh, you know, but the ministry to people will always come the key to all the different activities no matter what you do. And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's volleyball or softball or the Ironman or, or the Halloween hayride or the, uh, you know, whatever we do. Whatever we do, we're always looking out for that person that God is bringing to us and looking for that open door to be able to minister to them and to give them whatever they need. My job in all that we do is to never lose sight of the sure calling to ministry that God has given this church and to keep it before you. And that's an easy job because you're all so workable and pliable for the most part. And everybody here, almost without exception, is here because you want to be part of what God's doing. And you want your piece of the action. Now today, again, we will move through a couple of more verses here in Proverbs chapter 24. And I want to read chapter 24, verses 28 through 32. I'm going to read 27 last week, which was a key verse, so we can kind of keep it within the on the context here, it says, prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thine house. And we talked about that last week. Now here's the new verses. Be not a witness against thy neighbor without cause and deceive not with thy lips. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles, had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I said, and considered it well, and looked upon it, and received uh, instructions. Will, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering for me today? Yeah, thank you. I really, the service today. Amen. 
Now let's start with verse 28 and 29. We're going to kind of work our way down through here. And as I already said, you're going to get another great example today of word studies because that's how you open up many, many passages of the Bible. But verse 28 and 29, starting off here, deals with an issue of going up against a person over an issue that you have with them. Uh, something that has arisen between two people or an organization or whatever, and uh, <clears throat> now you have, you're at odds with them. And uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a problem that comes up. And you know as well as I do that in the course of life, whether you're saved or you're unsaved, you're going to have problems with people. And it's how you deal with those problems that are, are the way you, you want to deal with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a great example of this. The church at Corinth is all messed up on how to handle problems, and Paul tried to line them out. Uh, anger in the Bible, <clears throat> and anger is a key word today uh, in our society. Uh, you have all kinds of forms of anger that, uh, you know, that uh, is just a terrible thing. Child abuse, animal abuse, road rage, uh, you know, spouse abuse. Uh, it's just, it's endless today. <clears throat> but anger, from the Bible standpoint, is not always a bad thing. <clears throat> There's what the Bible calls a righteous indignation, an anger that's ba- an indignation of anger that is based on something that's righteous. I mean, there's a proper time for anger from the Bible, and then there's an improper time. The problem is that most of God's people don't know the difference, and they're always falling into the improper time. And the key to anger <clears throat> will be the cause of the anger. And that, that's very important, a just cause in this case. You know, anger is a God-given emotion. It's like all the other emotions we have. The same God that gave love is the same God that gave anger. We have all the <clears throat> neo-evangelical crowd and all the charismatic crowd like to walk around and talk about God as love. Well, he is, but he's also angry. <laughs> we seem to like to focus on the love and not the anger. <clears throat> and what he is saying here. Uh, what he is saying here, that if you have a just cause and you're up against an issue with somebody, <clears throat> be honest in how you deal with them and how you approach it, and be honest in what you say to them <clears throat> or how you deal with them. You deal with them in a biblical format. And we know that <clears throat> God gets angry. I mean, Christ gets angry. And in the Bible, you have the term, the wrath of God. Uh, you have the fact where the Bible says that the anger of God was kindled. And uh, in those cases, when you find that, <clears throat> if you study the passages, you're always going to see that there's a, a just cause to it. But I want to show you something here. I don't want to miss this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Now, this is a <clears throat> definitive verse on anger. And I know it's a millennial context in Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a practical side to it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I say unto you that he that is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And clearly there it says that to be angry with somebody, you have to have a cause. And that call, you just can't lose your temper and get angry and have uncontrolled anger over everything. There has to be a just cause. That is a great, <clears throat> that is a great checkpoint for somebody with anger. What is the cause behind your anger? <clears throat> but I want to show you something here that I think 
we have been talking about this, and I never miss an opportunity to <coughs> expose all the corruption that's out there. Uh, but I want you to, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says that Christ was angry at his brethren for their unbelief. Then when you go over into <coughs> Mark chapter 11, verse 17, and you'll find that again in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, there he's angry when he goes into the temple and he throws out, turns over the tables, throws out the money changers and kicks over the tables and throws everybody out. Now there's two places, and I'll just use those two, there's two places that show you and tell you that Christ got angry. <clears throat> now watch this. Matthew chapter 5 verse 22 says, But I say unto you that he that is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. If you have an NIV this morning, <coughs> or an ASV, or any other godless piece of trash that they're trawling a Bible today, when you get to Matthew chapter 5 verse 22, you will find that very, very, very carefully, somebody with a scalpel sliced out without a cause. And simply says now in your NIV, which your pastor tells you is the, is the newest, best edition, and, uh, <clears throat> and how that the scholars will tell you that. But it says, but I say unto you that he is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And by taking out without a cause, where you have at least two places that Jesus is angry with his brethren, very, very slowly, very auspiciously, they make Christ a guilty sinner before the judgment. The cheap shots that they take at the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there are major ones that are unparalleled, but to me it's always been amazing how that the devil never even misses the most minute chance to take a shot at the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and make him guilty as any human man out there. All right, now look at verse 29 as we go on here. It says, Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. And of course, the great verse we all love and cherish is doing to others before they do it to you. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying here. You know, in the Old Testament, and we hear people use this all the time, it talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And many times people will use that as a, as a point of reference to take judgment out or retribution out on somebody that they have a problem with. Well, he did it to me, so I'm going to do it to him. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, I understand that. But the truth of the matter is that kind of justice in the Old Testament was meted out through the structure of the nation of Israel. It may have been an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it went through the judges and the elders. It wasn't somebody just going out and doing his own thing and taking revenge on somebody. God had a structure by which that concept, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it went through. And uh, it wasn't up to an individual just to go out and to, uh, to uh, you know, to uh, do his own thing, so to speak. And when it comes to issues in the church, you know, that you have problems with people. You, you never take matters into your own hand. I mean, I know the Bible says you go and talk to them. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I don't mean the, the revenge side or the, the dealing with them in a, in a harsh way. Uh, there's a structure for it. And that structure, obviously, is the New Testament church. 
and uh, you're to take it through the church. This is what the Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 weren't doing. And they're, they're taking each other to a civil court, suing each other over issues. And Paul says, what are you doing? He says, someday you as Christians are going to judge the world. Are you telling me, based on that, you're not able to judge the smallest matters that you have to deal with now? And, of course, they weren't. And it was a mess. If you have problems in the church, you take it within the church, and you deal with it through the structure that has been <coughs> set down that everybody makes sure that everything's done biblically in the way it should be. Now, when it comes to the issues of the world, Romans chapter 12 tells us that here again, the, the powers that be ordained, the structure of government uh, is, is how you operate. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a thing where you, uh, you, you have a, in both cases, you have a legitimate process by which you can deal with issues that come up. And uh, it's never good to take matters into your own hands, not only within the Christian world, but also in the world. Now, I'm not talking about you protecting yourself. I'm not talking about... You know, if somebody breaks into your house, the last thing you want to give them is John 3.16. Maybe that is the last thing that you give them yeah. as they're laying on the floor. I, I, whatever it may be. You know, I, you know and, I, and I want to make this clear. I don't want somebody to think that, you know, it, it bothers me. It bothers me how that, you know, uh, especially with women today, it's just almost like every week some woman gets attacked on one of these running places over here in Kansas or even in Missouri. And, uh, you know, they're very secluded sometimes. They're very hard to, uh, you know, you're out there all by yourself and you're running and there's some pervert out there that uh, uh, is going to uh, hurt you or even in your own home, you know, in your own neighborhood. I mean, there was a YouTube video on the thing here a couple of weeks ago where a gal was just wa- running in her own neighborhood. Some guy pulls up the car behind her and comes up and tries to grab her. And she fought him off and ran away and the neighbors were there and yelled at her. But I'm telling you, I'm not talking about things like that. Uh, in spite of all this, you have a God-given right to protect yourself, your person. And there's laws that you govern by that, but <clears throat> that's just the way it, it's the way it should be. And, um, you know, I think it's a terrible thing. And I know, and I watch these things. And I just, you know, they say, they have this, you know, people get, these ladies get assaulted on the trail, and then it sh- cuts to the fact that it, they go to hand-to-hand combat courses, or they go to they go to some kind of rape prevention where they, you know, they teach you how to break a guy's hold and all that stuff. Hey, listen, I'm all for that. But I want to tell you right now, if you get a, and this is not maybe true in some of our churches. We got some gals here that are pretty rough. But anyway, <laughs> if you're a 125-pound lady and some 250-pound guy grabs you, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you can know all the... You can know all the karate and all the kung fu and everything in the world, but unless you're a black belt, you know, he's going to overpower you. And in cases like that, you don't want to use judo, karate, or kung fu. You want to use kerchink. (laughs) Kerchink will solve all of the problems. Kerchink is not an oriental martial arts. Kerchink is the sound that your 45 makes when you run a little chamber around into it. And I guarantee you, if every guy over there in Kansas or Missouri that likes to pray on these little trails with the innocent women, if they all went out there knowing that three-quarters of them were probably armed and qualified and can handle a firearm, you'd see the whole thing just go away. I mean, I'm telling you, the response time for 911 in a place like that is probably 15 minutes. 
versus the response time of a nine millimeter, which is 1,500 feet per second. You figure it out. I don't know how I got into that, but I just wanted to say that. Anyway, look at verse 30. I went by the fields of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. Now here's a picture of modern day Christianity with, without any question about it. And I want to look at each key word here and I want to show you some more about a word study. I want to show you how you take a passage and just lift out one of the key words, run it through the Bible and let it define that word and how it comes back and shows you how to put it all together. And uh, the first word we want to look at is the word field. Now we looked at that one last week and you should already have that down. We know from Matthew chapter 13 that the field is told us that the field is the world. So when he's talking about, I went by the field, he's talking about somebody who's slothful, who when it comes to their calling to the world by Christ. Well, the next verse, uh, next word, slothful. Twelve times in the book of Proverbs, (coughs) you will find a reference to a slothful person, man. A man or a woman who, when it comes to the things of God, will become very lazy, very undisciplined, not diligent, very wasteful with the things that God has given them, unprincipled in their life. Somebody who will never get past themselves and what they uh, want out of life for themselves and will never lift a finger to do anything that the Bible says they ought to be doing. Now, They're also called a sluggard in the book of Proverbs, and if I remember right, there's six times that he make a reference to a sluggard, which we all lovingly know as a slug, which you have seen in your driveway from time to time. And uh, it says this guy is slothful. Then the third word we want to look at here is the word vineyard. Now, doctrinally, the vineyard and you got to see the doctrinal, see how it fits into you and me. The doctrinal issue here that the vineyard will always be the nation of Israel, um, in particular Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it'll be a reference to the city that God gave them <clears throat> that was going to be the city that everybody on planet earth got ministered to through the temple. And Jerusalem, when you talk about a vineyard in the Bible in an Old Testament sense, it'll always be a reference to God's work. Uh, get his work in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we know that it's going to be the particular work that God will call you to within the field, the world. We talked last week about you buying a field where the Bible says that Christ bought the field, the world. You and I, he never asked me to buy the whole world. He just asked me to consider a field, a field that was in the field and to buy that one. And then once you do that, you clear it, you, you plant, you build a vineyard that in time will bear fruit uh, for the Lord. I, I gave you the verse last week in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 16, where it said, talking about the virtuous woman, she considereth a field and buyeth it with the work of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. 
And that's a great verse. And I, I can't wait till we get to Proverbs 31 and really look at this virtuous woman and all the aspects of how it applies to us as Christians. But, you know, to use an illustration that you can understand, and I said this last week, when I came to Kansas City in 1976, I recognized that this was the field that God had, had for me. And I, I bought this field. And I realized back then that God didn't ask me to, he didn't ask me to go win the whole world. He just asked me to consider a field and to buy that field, but with all the intensity that Christ bought the field with. And so I did. And the truth of the matter is, if every child of God ever got saved, ever considered a field and bought a field, in time we'd cover the whole world. That was his plan. But my field was Kansas City. And when I got here, <coughs> the first thing I saw <coughs> was my field, and I knew that I was supposed to plant a vineyard. But you know as well as I do that when you go out there to farm someplace and you get a field, you've got to do a lot of preparation to the field before you can ever plant anything. You have to get rid of the rocks. You have to get rid of the tree stumps and the roots. There's a lot of things in a field you've got to get out of the field before you can plant everything. I remember back in the day when I started out, I started out as a youth pastor. And as a youth pastor, I dealt with high school kids like Zach and Jenny does, and uh, that was where I started. But I knew that I was not going to be satisfied there because the system back then was nowhere like the system we have now. The system back there was is that there was a guy who was over the college and career class. And I had the kids from the time they went into high school to the time they graduated. And then when they graduated, they went into the college class and left the high school class. Now, in the scheme of things, that's the way it worked back then. I immediately saw that that wasn't going to work for me. Because of the fact that I knew that my God had called me to take young men and young ladies and to invest everything I had, to train them to be everything. And I couldn't do that if I lost them after four years. So I set my sights, without saying it to anybody, I set my sights uh, to to be a a singles pastor or college, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't but a short time after that that the guy that they had there decided that he was going to go do something else. And so that position became open. And I remember going in, and I was just a new into the ministry back then, and I, I told the pastor that, that I, you know, that's what I wanted to do, and, and if I could move on to that position, uh, that, you know, I, I would like to do that. He didn't want me to leave the high school because the high school was going so well, and they had had a history of a lot of bad high school guys there, and, and he didn't want to do that. And I understood what he was saying, but I also understood my calling. And I was very kind to him, and I told him, I said, look, here's my goal and my plan to what I want to build. Now, I'm either going to do it here, or I will do it somewhere else, but I won't do it, can't do it with a high school kid. Well, make a long story short, I got the college and career club. Penny was in it during that time, weren't you, Penny? Anybody else here back then in those days, in the early days? Yeah, you were there? Meredith, they weren't even born yet. How did you get into my college class when you were three? Oh, okay, that's a good answer. I'm not going to argue with that one. I'm her Uncle Bob. She can do whatever she wants. Well, I don't mean this in a bad way, 
But the guy who was on the college class that I took over didn't know what he was doing. He was an evangelical. He was, um, it, it, it didn't go, it was, it, he had about 80 people in there. And I, and they didn't know anything about the Bible. And so I knew at that point in time, I had my work cut out for me. And I knew that I was going to have to move some things out of the field. And we were running about 80 people in it. I think I got it down to 40 before it started to turn around. This guy was a marshmallow type of guy. He didn't really know much about the Bible. And he just, you know, he, he just, he played at it. I had a plan. I had a goal. I had a calling. And I was sure of it. And I knew that you weren't going to train up anybody to do anything for God with a marshmallow message. So I began, first, oh, I'll never forget it. I began to, I began to, I, I, I could see the looks on their faces the first Sunday I preached. They all thought they died and went to hell. I ain't kidding you. And I just didn't let up. I knew that I was going to have to weed out of that field the non-hackers and then start from scratch or whatever to begin to go from there. And, you know, they, they were kind, and they, but they, they didn't like it. I've had many of them who turned the corner, come back, and they thought, boy, when you first came, we did not like it at all. But, you know, everybody gets used to abuse sooner or later. <laughs> They'd leave me little messages. There was a blackboard, a whiteboard, behind where I would preach. And I would come down there on Sunday morning, and somebody got down there before me and wrote on the blackboard, Dear Pastor Bob, we love you very much. But you need to feed the sheep. I walked in and looked at that. Walked back out. Whole place was there. I walked up to the pulpit. Put my Bible on there. Took the magic marker. To whom it may consume. Yeah, consume. To whom it may concern. You cannot feed dead sheep. All you can do is skin them. Now, if you have your Bible this morning, and then let them have it again, man. <laughs> Over the course of the years, I think when it was all said and done, it, we took that 80, 40 people and was running somewhere 1,200, 1,400 and doing missionary work, discipleship all over the world. And many of you were part of that. And uh, it, was a, it was a thing where when I saw that, I knew that was where God called me. And that was my field. But I had to move some rocks out of the way. I had to get some stumps out. I had to, I had to get some snakes from under those rocks that were hiding under them rocks. And it just takes some time. But I'll tell you, when you begin to plant that vineyard, you've got to do it one tree at a time. One person at a time. One family at a time. Now, when we started our church 16 years ago, we started with 14 people. And now we've got this plus what's out there on the YouTube uh, all over the place. And uh, uh, it's all because it started with, with a small group who planted trees, vineyards. They were fruit-bearing fruit trees, and it grew up, bore more fruit, and that's how it's supposed to go. You know, in the parable of the sower, which is found over there in Mark chapter 4, it's a, I think it's a great illustration of this. The Bible says that a guy goes out to sow, and what he's sowing is the Word of God. It's called a seed, but it's the Word of God. And you'll find that that's a great picture of any church, any ministry, uh, that you're going to try to consider a field and buy it, and with the fruit of your hands, plant a vineyard. 
And in that, first, that story there, the first one, he puts a seed out, and he said some fell by the wayside. Uh, when you put the Word of God, not everybody's going to pick it up. Not everybody's going to get it. And there's some that just falls by the wayside. And then you, he keeps on sowing, and I guess that's the key here. You've got to go through these three to find the fourth one, which is the good one. He keeps on sowing, and it says some fell on stony ground. Now, that are people who, that's people who have a hardness in their heart. They really don't care for the things of God. They're bitter, they're angry, whatever, and it just falls on that stony ground and it can't take any root. Then the third group is somebody that says it fall on among thorns. And the thorns choke the Word of God and can't, and we're going to talk about the thorns here in a minute, choke the Word of God and can't go anywhere. But then he says if he keeps on doing it, some falls on the good ground. Sooner or later, if you keep putting out the Word of God and you're considered a field and it's the true field that God has given to you and you got the determination to buy it, that you're not going to stick around for about six, seven, eight months or two, three years and decide that it isn't here, it's someplace else. God doesn't change His mind like that. When God called me here, I've been here for, for since 1976. And it's a situation where this is where God called me. And so you, you, you begin to see how it, 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 it works that way and how that some fell on the good ground. And then you have the man that is void of understanding. And you will find that uh, uh, this guy has no clue what God is doing. He's oblivious to anything that God has called him to do. There's no calling. There's no nothing that he's sure of. No nothing. And Christianity, uh, Christianity is, is, is filled with people just like that. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 19 says that people who are void of understanding or slothful, it says they're like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. In other words, a broken tooth renders you pretty well helpless to try to eat. And a, and a foot out of joint completely renders you from running or walking. And you find that Christianity is filled with people like this. And I want to say right now, the majority of them are not bad people. I mean, you find some that are into all kinds of things, but the majority of them aren't. Some of the nicest people, am I almost 50 years in ministry, some of the nicest people you ever met were some of the most worthless people you ever met. They just didn't want to step outside their comfort zone. They didn't want to get a sure word or a sure calling and didn't care much about the sure reward. And I say this to you based on a little bit of experience. In every church, you're going to find four kinds of people. You're going to find those who know what God is doing. You're going to find those who have no understanding of what God's doing. You're going to have those then that have no clue of what God's doing. And you're going to have those that don't care a flip about what God's doing. And that's how you're going to find them. And the last three today is where most of God's people fit in. They don't fit into the ministry. They fit into this. One gets the understanding and does something with it. The other one never gets anything. Now look at verse 31. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles, had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Now that's the condition of the vineyard today. 
And we're going to look at the key words here. You want a word study. Here we have a verse with four areas mentioned that are really important. They really illustrate what God's people uh, are today and where they're at. And any way you examine and look at Christianity today through the Word of God, it's just clear uh, it, it, all and over again that in most cases it's a disaster, a calamity. The first thing he says here that the, it's covered and grown over with thorns and thistles. Now we want to do a word study on that. Now thorns and thistles will always be a picture of sin in our lives. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are put down in the garden and they have a perfect life with a perfect environment and everything is just absolutely wonderful, in Genesis chapter 3 when sin comes in and in verse 18 when, when sin arises, the Bible says that the ground is now cursed, and then he tells them in no uncertain terms that thorns and thistles are now going to come forth. They weren't there before. And you're going to find from that point all the way through the Bible when he uses thorns and thistles or nettles <coughs> or brambles, when Christ is dying on the cross, he's got a crown of thorns. He made him king of your sin. Think about that for a while. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, Israel is told that the other nations, and you getting messed up with them and getting involved with them, will become uh, thorns in your sides and prick your eyes. In other words, the thorns will put your eyes out They'll snag you. They'll hold you up that you can't see. Now Joshua chapter 23, verse 13, again, talking to Joshua, he says that the other nations, the ones that they were told to wipe out and stay away from, the other nations are going to be snares and traps, thorns in your eyes and in your size. Now, it's a, it's a clear thing here, and we see it all the time if you work with people. How many times has somebody gotten in with the wrong crowd? When they get in with the wrong crowd, before they got in with the <coughs> wrong crowd, they were just fine. But they let their guard down. They got into a situation that happens many, many times in different formats, and suddenly they're with the wrong crowd. They're getting bad information. They're getting bad counsel, they're getting bad influences, and pretty soon they can't see from the Word of God once they once they once saw. In other words, the thorns that they're hanging out with have put out their eyes, and they can't see it anymore. In Judges chapter 8, verse 7, they're told that when they got messed up with these nations, and they did over and over and over and over again, <clears throat> that those those thorns would tear you, or they would tear you apart with the thorns uh, of the wilderness. And in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 19, it says, The slothful man is like a hedge of thorns. And a hedge of thorns is like a bramble bush. Try to run through one one time. I don't care how good a hunting clothes you got on. Those needles are as sharp as daggers. And they will stick you and cut you and you will be bleeding from a hundred places. And you'll never break through it. I mean, you may put 
trees, bushes, and everything, and you may blow through it, you will not blow through a very thorn bush. It will rip you apart. And that's what he's talking about. Thorns and thistles, likened to our sin, will stop us dead in our tracks of the calling that God has given us. Then the next thing he says here is, he talks about the stones of the stone wall. Now, stones are a great study in the Bible, great word study. And you're going to find that basically there's two kinds of building material in the Bible in the Old Testament. One of them is stones, and the other one is bricks. When the nation of Israel was down in Egypt for 430 years, Pharaoh, a type of the world, a type of the devil, has put them into his service, and they're making bricks. The bricks that they are making are used to make Egypt better and stronger and bigger and more powerful. The bricks in the Bible will always be a picture of man-made consumption of things that are going to build a man-made, man-honoring, man-concept. Stones in the Bible are always God-made. So you'll find that the Old Testament altars in the Bible are always made of stone. You'll find that the temple was made of stone. And Christ is called, and over there in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, the stone cut without hands out of the mountain of God. The stones will represent Bible doctrine. Each stone is cut out of the mountain of God, and God puts it in your world in the form of a doctrine or a principle, and they form building blocks. When we went to back to Genesis chapter 11, verse 3, <coughs> Thursday night, somebody was talking about the Tyre of Babel, and I showed you then, made a reference to today, I was going to talk about this. The Tyre of, Bible, Tyre of Babel, the Bible is very clear that they've got brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they made this tower, and it's a picture of a one-world religion, but notice the components It's not stone. This religion is not God-made. It's man-made. Now, what you got in Christianity today is a lot of guys and a lot of churches that are completely departing from the Bible. They're leaving everything that God told you was holy and true. And now we've got the same issue. We've got churches that are man-made and that are God-made. And Isaiah 65, 13 says... Talking about Israel, God speaking, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick. Israel had transitioned from a God religion based on God's things to a man-made mess (coughs) that was now constructed by man-made things. Now, the next concept is stone wall. Now, we know what the stones themselves are. Now, this will go back to Isaiah chapter 28. You don't have to turn to it. We've been there many times, but you know what it's saying. There, it's talking about how shall we teach doctrine. And it talks about the building blocks of you building a wall 
based on Bible doctrine that becomes your protection, that in time becomes a, a, a tall tower, a high tower by which you are protected from. And we, 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 we see how that this is God-made, not man-made. Bible building blocks made of stone. The stones are individual Bible principles or doctrine. Building your wall of defense against the world. That's what will keep you and protect you in your walk with God. Now here, as today, the stone wall is broken down. And today Christianity is, has no defense to what the devil wants to do with them. They're defenseless. And they're defenseless because they're slothful and they're void of understanding. And their whole world wall, everything that God gave them in Christianity is overgrown with the thorns of their sin. Now I want you to see this. It says that the nettles and the thorns have covered the face of the wall. We want to talk about that for a moment. Because the face will be the face of Christ, who he is. And if you know who Christ is from a biblical perspective and you have a good relationship with him, you didn't find out who Christ was from your daily bread. You didn't find Christ was where some radio preacher. You got into the Bible and got the building blocks of Christianity one block at a time and you built your wall. And as you got the Bible doctrines as the stones God made and put them in the wall and built that wall, it was those doctrines that revealed to you the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Isaiah 65 verse 3 a few minutes ago. Provoke me to anger to my face. You only know who Christ is in your life and who he really is and what he really do for you and have the real relationship by the doctrines in the Bible that reveal his face to you that you see and know who he is. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you Lamentations chapter 4 verse 1 and talked about how the gold has become dim and how the most fine gold has changed. And then I told you how that the stones of the sanctuary, these very stones that we're talking about here, the stones of the sanctuary were broken down and laying in the street. And the reason the gold and the fine gold has become the dim today to God's people because it's covered with the thorns and the nettles and the, and, the, and the briars of this whole world. And God's people, just like Israel, they cannot even recognize who he is today. Oh, my goodness. The absolute terrible state of New Testament Christianity because the churches today are being built with brick and slime instead of the stones that God gave us. Now look at verse 32. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instructions. Now there's four things here we want to look at in our little word study. The first thing he says is, then I saw. Let me ask you a question. What do you really see? Do you really see what's going on around you in Christianity? Do you really have any clue? Do you see the terrible rejection of God and His Word that's all around us today? 
Do you see Rome as the greatest enemy of Christianity? Or are you willing to make an alliance with them so you can all win people to Christ in the third millennium? Do you see Rome as the greatest enemy ever in the history of the world? <coughs> Where its only design is to take uh, the world and put it into slavery? And let the devil through his church, Revelation chapter 7 and 18, uh, do all the works through his, uh, through his religion? Do you see and understand how that in the great reformation when Martin Luther broke from the Roman Catholic Church as did the other reformers? Did you see how that that reformation is written about in history probably as one of the greatest events? Everybody knows about it. Everybody talks about it. Everybody relates back to it. But do you, do you know and understand? Have you ever saw the counter-reformation that the devil put into place to bring those people back to him? Of course you haven't. What do you see? Then I saw. Do you see anything? Well, yeah, I see they're all God's people. We need to all get along. Okay, that's great. Sit over here. What do you see? You see the neo-evangelicalism, the neo-orthodoxy, and the charismatic movement for who they really are? Or you got too many friends there? You don't want to make anybody mad. Do you see how the Roman Catholic Church, through the devil, has helped with God's people, took the only true possession of God ever gave you from you, a perfect Bible? Do you see that? Then I saw, did you? Did you know that the only thing that sets you apart from every other religion in the world is the perfect, absolute Bible that God gave you? And you lose that, you're just like everybody else. So the Baptists take Baptists off their name, the Neo-Evangelicals get involved, and the Neo-Orthodox get involved, they get rid of the Bible, and they're all together. There isn't one doctrinal issue that separates them. But brother, there's plenty that separate us. Then I saw. (laughs) Did you? Then I saw. What did you see? I'll tell you what I saw. I saw in Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 that God had a seed and the devil had a seed. And we're not going to get born again by a corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God. And the devil and God both got a seed. He says, then I saw and considered it well. Put emphasis on the word well. Now, for me, I can't speak for you. Once I saw it, I went to work considering it. For almost 50 years, I've considered these things. I'm not some old crazy coot up here that just gets up here and... I've had 50 years of watching this thing. How it impacts me, my family, my ministry... I considered over in Job chapter 41, verses 12 and 13, where he says, who can discover the face of his garment? I considered that. I looked at that, and I thought to myself, face of his garment. That is a strange 
phrase. And then he says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. I consider those things. I said to myself, I see that. I saw. Now I'm going to consider it. What is he trying to tell me? He's telling me about the greatest chapter in the Bible, two greatest chapters, Job 40 and 41, that will tell me everything I need to know about the devil's plan. I got God's plan down. Now he showed me what the devil's plan was to overthrow God's plan. And when I read there in Job chapter 40 and 41 about Leviathan, when I read in Job chapter 40 and 41 about Behemoth, I can go to Isaiah 27 and track down Leviathan, find out he's talking about the devil. I can go a number of places and find out that those are the two greatest chapters because I saw it and then I considered it. Scholarship told me that Leviathan was a crocodile, that Behemoth was an elephant. Now, you wouldn't know how many millions of people out there read that, get what scholarship says, and then say, wow, that was nice, and then move on with life. And you just missed and glossed over two of the greatest chapters that you need to consider well. I will not conceal his parts. That's the men down through history he has used. I will not conceal his power. That's the nations down through history he has used. Nor his comely proportion. That's the religion down through history he has used. And I remember reading, Who shall discover the face of his garments? And as I began to put church history together and look at all the things together, I found it. I saw it. Face of his garments. I realized that the whole history of man and the history of Bible of recording of that history of man is nothing more than the devil changing garments seven times down through history. Seven times like a seven-act play when the scenery was changing in history, when things were being moved around and changing, he went off stage and put on a garment that matched the scenery and blend it in. Seven garment changes. The face of his garment. You see, this is the key. He changed garments, but the face is always the same. And when you know what that face is found in the Bible, he'll never elude you. Then the next thing it says, I looked upon it. Now, I want you to see here again a couple of key words. He didn't say, I looked at it. He said, I looked upon it. That's from an elevated position. Clearing a show of you higher than ground level or what you see in a one-dimensional view. And I might just add this. Christianity today and most of God's people are one-dimensional Christians. All they see is what is before them. They never see it as it really is in the three dimensions. And then if you want to get real spiritual, you move into that fourth dimension. And boy, you better look out when you get there. Looked upon it. 
And you looked upon it from the high tower that you built, from the wall that you built, with the individual building blocks of Bible doctrine that you built into a wall, that built into a tower. And now you can look down and you have perspective. Now you can look down and have a context because now you have a position. I looked upon him from my high tower. Psalms 18.2 says that my high tower was my salvation. Psalm 61.3 says my high tower was for me to see the enemy. Psalm 144 verse 2 says my high tower was my deliverer. And Proverbs 18.10 says that my high tower was uh, found in the name of the Lord. You want to always get to the point by building the doctrines in your life, <clears throat> the principles in your life, getting the thorns and the nestles off of that wall and start to see everything in life from God's standpoint. Seeing it higher than the other people see it. Through the tower that you have built through the stones of God, building that wall and building that tower. So then the next thing he says that I received instructions. 25 times in the book of Proverbs alone, he makes reference to giving out his instructions to us. You know, the key to successful Christian life is not having the right Bible. The key to successful Christian life is not having the right church. The key to successful Christian life is receiving what those things give you and doing something with them. I received instructions. That's what I did, like the wise man in Proverbs. I, through instructions, saw God move down through history and how the devil moved in opposition to stop God. Through instructions, I saw the slow process of replacing uh, the, the Christ, uh, God's Word, through a systematic system that was going to destroy people's lives. Through that whole system, I, 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 I observed, I got instructions about Bible college, about scholarship, about Christian education, destroying all that God has. Now, you might be asking at this point in time, if I didn't get it through Bible college, scholars union, and Christian education, where do you get your instructions from? And the answer to that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Here comes your instructions. But we have the mind of Christ. There's your instructions. And then he tells you in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The pure, complete, perfect, inspired, absolute word of God that is the mind of Christ. That's where you get your instructions from. Now, there it is. Your education, your degree, your scholarship, your eye crew has absolutely nothing to do with it. And God didn't give us two sets of instructions. Take it or leave it. Your instructions will come through the book that is God's mind. And God doesn't have two minds, nor does he change his mind, because we're told last week not to meddle with them that are given to change. So you want something absolute and perfect that is fixed that never changes. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, it says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And there's the key. 
God will open up your understanding and give you his mind, his absolute opinion on everything, but you will have to receive those instructions. Simply look at what God's, what, what, what uh, uh, going on around us and run it through the word of God. The Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Make the judgment call for your own life based on the mind of God, the instructions that he gave you. Learn and take instructions, that's, that, that's, what, that's, what, that's what's wrong. And build for yourself a strong tower from which you can work the ministry. Through the building of a wall of stone, Bible doctrine, that comes from the, fa- from Mount, the Mount of God, and it reveals to you the face of Christ. And build your tower high and strong. And the higher you build it, the stronger it will be. Now, in the Bible, it talks about three types of fruit bearing. When I've always seen this and put it to what I've been considering and what I, what I see and try to understand, I also know that it's not only times three types of fruit bearing, but God's people are going to build three types of towers. And you can build your tower as high as you want. And I guess the question today is how high are you willing to build it? That'll be the level of your protection. And you'll build that tower based on the stones of God, which are the Bible doctrines that you put them into a wall and build that wall and that tower high. Mark chapter 4, verse 20 says, and they're uh, talking about the sowing of God's Word. He says, and there are they which are sown on good ground. We talked about that such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit. Then he says, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. You'll find that God's people, you'll find the 30-fold Christians. They'll only, they'll only give so much and they'll only build so much. And I might say to you, a 30-foot tower isn't going to do much for you. But that's where they go. They, they start to build it, start to put it up, and <clears throat> they go out there and look, well, that's good enough. That's good enough. That'll do. Well, we got a ball game to get to. The Chiefs are playing at noon. That'll do. Let's go. That, that'll do it. Let's go. That's, that's high enough. That's high enough. Come on, let's eat. That's high enough. Then you have those that'll go a little bit farther, and they'll build the 60-foot tower. They bear fruit 60 and they get that up there, boy, and they say, well, that's good. Well, you know, 60 foot, man, that is, that's, uh, man, that's really up there. There ain't nobody going to get up there at 60 foot. Well, we're good. We'll just stop right there, and uh, we'll go from there. And then there's those that build 100 foot. Give 100%. Those who bear fruit 30%, those who bear fruit 60%, those who bear fruit 100%. Those who give 30%, those who give 60%, and those who give 100%. Those who build a 30-foot tower wall, those who build a 60-foot tower wall, those who build a 100-foot tower wall. But I'm telling you this, the higher you build it, the safer you are. Now, I know 30, 60, 100, it's a great illustration, but let me just say this to you. Don't ever stop building your tower. It always amazed me <coughs> how that back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel, <coughs> The unshaved religious world that was trying to put out a false religion, when they built their tower of Babel, and Babel means confusion, when they built that tower back there, 
their, their goal was, who's taught me reach unto heaven. In our Christian world today, when we build our tower, our goal is just get it high enough so I can quit. The higher you build it, four things happen. The higher you build it, the better you can see what's going on around you. If you want a good example of this, just get on your computer and call up your Google Maps or your Bing Maps. Put in an address. You'll get a satellite view that shows you're probably 40 square miles. You start putting the button to zero in on it, you get closer and closer and closer. If you can come right down on the rooftop of what the house you're looking at, but you lose everything that's out in the perimeter. In other words, the higher you get, the more you can see around you. And the more Bible you get in your life, the more Bible principles you get. That's what, what, what do you think? Yesterday in, in people ministry, I'll tell you, that was probably the greatest rendition that we have ever done on salvation in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. I, I don't know how we could have ever done it any cleaner, any clearer, in any depth that you walked out of there yesterday saying, boy, I got it. And you know what? It was based on everybody putting in things that pulled it all together. And the more you learn about God, the more you learn about who He is, the more you learn about how He thinks, how He operates, and look at the things around you and see what they are, the higher you get, the better you can see what's around you. Pretty soon you get that bird's eye perspective that you, you understand it. And then the second thing, the, the higher you get, the better you can see what's coming your way. If you've got an army and you're going to camp, you, if you've got a mountain near right close to your high hill or high observation point, what you want to do is put two guys up on there and take them in shifts and everybody watches the surrounding area so you know what's coming your way. If you're in a desert someplace, they can be 40 miles away and you can see the dust cloud knowing something's coming your way. If you're in the jungle someplace and, the, and it's very quiet and you're sneaking through the jungle and all of a sudden about 4,000 birds start going crazy, something's coming your way. The higher you get, you not only can see what's around you, you can see a long way off what's moving toward you. And this tower that we're on, this great tower, we already know from the Bible that it's pitch black dark and we live in darkness. And so you got these incredible big King James 1611 searchlights that go for hundreds of miles that will illuminate everything in the darkness. I'll tell you something else, the third thing. The higher you build it, the harder it is for somebody or something to get to you. The devil likes to pick on people who are easy prey. When he came to destroy Adam and Eve, he picked on the easy prey. Eve was the weaker vessel. He'll always pick the ones and manipulate the ones that have fear because the Bible says perfect love casteth out fear, so he attacks the ones who don't have perfect love, and that's how he manipulates them. He'll exist with people who are afraid. And he knows if you really get into the Word of God and you really are confident and you're protected in the Word of God, then, then he has no, no, no place for you. The great example of that is over there at the, in, in Matthew chapter 4. When he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and he tries to tempt him three times, he comes up the first time and he says, I'm going to do this. And Jesus just looks at him and didn't argue with him. 
Didn't say a word to him. Didn't even recognize him. He just simply says, it is written. He went the second time and he said, well, if you do this, I'll do this. Didn't argue with him. All he said was, it is written. Third time the devil came back and he said, I'll give you this. All the kingdoms of the world, you just bow down and worship me. He didn't argue with him. He didn't say those kingdoms are going to be mine. He didn't say anything. You know what he said? He says, it is written. You know what the Bible says? The devil leaves him. You know why? Because the devil knows when you're so filled with the Word of God and you've got your high tower, there ain't no point in coming against your wall. It's when the wall's only 30 or 60. He'll try to scale it. And if you walk out there and say, well, my wall's done. You know, in the Army, the guys, the first night out in combat, when you had to dig a foxhole, and sometimes you had to dig foxholes, you know, and then you get it all dug down there, and so then they come in and they'd say, all right, we're moving out, let's go. And you'd have to go another two, 24 miles and dig another foxhole. Sometimes that happened two or three times a night. And after a while, some of the guys, the first night out there, they thought, uh, they, they thought uh, well, I, you know, I don't have to dig it that deep. And they just dug where one guy who was a vet was digging down six, seven feet. The other guy was just digging two, three feet just to get comfortable. And everybody thought that was fine until them rounds start coming in in the middle of the night. You wish your hole was 150 feet deep then, brother. I mean, that shrapnel those dragging over there. And ain't just a shrapnel, boy. It hit them trees and those tree bursts. That wood just is like steel. First night out, you take it easy. The second night, brother, you dig thing that's so deep that uh, you have to have a ladder to get out. And just as the deeper you dig it, the safer you are when it comes to Christianity, the higher you build it, the safer you are. They can't get to you. You take a Christian that's a mature Christian, somebody that's been around for a while and built their life in a relationship with God, and we all look at them and think, boy, I'd like to be like that. Nothing seems to bother them. In many cases, nothing does bother them. You know why? Because if they've been in the ministry any length of time or just been a Christian for any length of time, they've seen it all. And they got their high tower so high that they can see uh, way around there uh, what's going on. They can see what's coming a long way. And they absolutely have the peace that nobody's going to get to them because of the fact whatever you're saying doesn't bother me. Whatever you're saying about me doesn't affect me. Whatever you're saying about me doesn't bother me. Yeah, sticks and stones might break to my bones, but words will never hurt me. You can't get to me. You know why? My tower is so much higher than you. All you can stand around down there is run around my tower and yell. So the better you can see what's around you, the better you can see what's coming your way, the harder it is for somebody to get to you, and the higher it is, that's where you find the rest of God that we talk about the last couple of weeks that eludes all of us. The rest of God. You rest because of the fact that you have the peace and the mind of God. You have the peace that passes all understanding. It keeps your hearts and mind. You have everything in your life going your way because you know that when you got that wall and that tower high and you got that wall and those stone blocks, the Bible doctrine, and there's no thorns and there's no nettles on it, and that thing is built strong and high, and you can observe and you've taken instruction and you've done everything that God has called you to do, you rest in the fact nobody's going to hurt you. And I can't describe to you any other peace in this world that feels like that. God's people today are the most fearful bunch of people you ever saw in your life. And that's because they don't even have a tower. They're standing on top of their station wagon, hoping that's high enough. 
Proverbs is an incredible book. Chapter 24 has just been a great chapter. And they, every chapter. But we've really got a lot of good things out of chapter 24. We're going to hold up right there. We're going to close out chapter 24 next week. And then we'll jump into chapter 25. Just six more chapters. And then we'll be done. That'll be done in four or five years. The way it's going. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We